I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash recommend today. Is your child struggling with a specific subject or need help with homework? Are they asking questions that you're not sure you can fully answer? IXL Learning is an online learning program for kids. It covers math, language arts, science, and social studies. IXL is designed. This program will improve your kids' grades. Studies done in almost every state in the country. The kids who had IXL are consistently doing better. Powered by advanced algorithms, IXL gives the right help to each kid no matter the age or personality. And it doesn't have to eat up all your time. One subscription gets you everything for all the kids in your home, pre-K to 12th grade. So don't miss out. One in four students in the U.S. are learning with IXL. IXL is used in 95 of the top 100 school districts in the U.S. Make an impact on your child's learning. Get IXL now. And listeners can get an exclusive 20% off IXL membership when they sign up today at IXL.com audio. Visit IXL.com audio to get the most effective learning program out there at the best price. Hello, kids. This is Risk, the show where people tell true stories they never thought they'd dare to share. I'm Kevin Allison, and every Thursday we release these special episodes where we look back at content from our earlier years. The first two years of Risk episodes, the ones from October 2009 to October 2011, were behind a paywall for a while. So now, every other Thursday, we're rerunning them for free. We ask that you keep the historical context in mind. Today, in 2021, there's a different consciousness. We've always asked storytellers to speak in as unfiltered a way as possible, and yet to tell their stories with as much compassion as possible. Even so, I'm sure the storytellers and the host might have worded some of what they said on these old episodes differently if they'd been recorded more recently. As always, the title of the whole series, Risk, is itself a content warning. This week, the 26th episode of Risk ever to be heard, it premiered in September of 2010, and it's called Finale. Risky business, wait, what is this? Risk without reward? Don't be senseless. We learn quick from OAs to infants. The payoff from risk is the business. It's risky like becoming a beautician by getting a degree online. No, you didn't. You see a future shining brightly, and I see some students reduce the tripping. Oh. The truth is that I'm no statistician, but I know that risk takes ambition. To fail is an option, but listen, even though we might not win, we gotta risk it. Howdy, kids! This is Risk, the show where people tell true stories they never thought they'd dare to share. I'm Kevin Allison. That was Yeah Big and Kid Static up top. This is Superbus behind me now. And we've made it to episode 26, the conclusion of our first year. Well, when we first started, people just lit up at the idea of an uncensored show where creative folks could just drop the act and get real. A show where we can share as a community the way we normally share amongst friends. But what we didn't see coming was your collaboration. You, our fans, have showered us with music, donations, ideas, and of course, your stories. That's why the show has grown so much, so we are super psyched to work and play with you even more in Season 2. Now, this is the second of our random-themed episodes where we continue to look back at stories we love this year but that didn't fit the right theme at the right time. We'll start with someone who's a total sweetheart, a giant talent, and a fellow member of the state. This is Carrie Kenny Silver with something we call Mesmerizing. So I have been a smoker my whole life, basically, and you know, I felt like enough was enough at a certain point and wanted to, to learn how to quit smoking. And I did everything. I did the books and I did the pills and the meditation and all that kind of garbage. 
I was just at a loss. And I said, all right, well, either, you know, I'm going to die early and that's fine because I've done a lot of stuff and, and that's good. And then I realized that's, that's really not a good attitude to have. So a friend of mine, which I can't name drop, an incredibly famous celebrity said to me, I went to this hypnotist and he is the be all end all, this guy, and you will quit. She said, I quit. If I can quit, you can quit. Trust me, this is the end of the road for you for smoking. Go to this guy. He's a miracle worker. So great. I call the guy. It's a three-year waiting list. So I'm psyched because I'm like, great, I have three more years to smoke. She says, no problem. I'll call and get you in right away. Unfortunately, she does. So the guy tells me over the phone, continue to smoke, continue to smoke, come to my office, and we'll start the process. So I'm smoking on the way, thinking, okay, this is probably my last pack of cigarettes. And I get to his office, air quotes, it's in his garage, uh, hadn't mentioned to me how much the process would cost. It's $400 a visit. Insurance doesn't pay. Of course, my famous friend can afford it, no problem. For me, this was kind of a big deal, but I thought, this is my life. I, it's worth it. How much is your life worth? Blah, blah, blah. So the first visit is me. I'm not this kind of gal. I'm not the frou-frou, let's sit and you know breathe out of our assholes and pretend like we're sitting on a beach and all of a sudden I don't want to smoke anymore. I mean, I'm a fucking smoker. So I get into this guy's garage and he's got posters on the wall with psychedelic pyramids that you're supposed to stare into. And the guy's kid who's like five years old is in the next room and I can hear him playing with like Thomas trains and stuff. It is the least tranquil place I've ever been. And it kind of smelled like feet, which is um, not relaxing at all. But this is my shot. So I relax into the chair and I'm in this weird massage chair. I think it was a massage chair that is now broken. So I'm laying on this sort of lumpy, broken massage chair thinking to myself, all right, 400 fucking dollars. Let's see what this guy's got. Lay back. And then I'm thinking, is this guy going to try and grope me? Because, you know, but then I think my friend went. She didn't mention anything. I feel like I would have known about it. So, all right, well, I'm going to give it a try. So I lay back, and the guy starts telling me about what's in cigarettes and the ammonia and carcinogens and how it's eating my lungs alive. And all I can think is, get me out of here so I can have a fucking cigarette. So I say, wow, that was something. That was really something, guy. And I give him his $400, and he says, okay, I only need to see you five more times. And, you know, you may want to smoke today, but, you know, eventually this is really going to taper off. All right, so fine. So I get in my car. I'm not out the driveway before I'm smoking another cigarette and thinking, wow, that was $400 that I could have spent on delicious cigarettes. So I come back the next time. Same bullshit. Pay the guy his money. Get in the car. Have another cigarette. At this point, I'm smoking more than ever because I'm thinking this is not working and I'm stressed because I'm wasting all this fucking money. So finally, it's the last time. And he says, now, this is the last one. And on the last one, I'm going to do this magical thing. We're going to go take you to this magical place, and you are not going to want to smoke anymore. So I'm laying in the chair, and he says, okay, and I don't know what the hell he's doing. I feel wind going by my face. He's waving his hands over my face or something. Hopefully, he wasn't jerking off. I don't know. And all of a sudden, yeah, boom, okay, the light hit me and I don't want to smoke anymore. Not true, but that's what I told him. I said, oh my gosh, this is un unbelievable. So sure enough, I leave. I'm in the driveway, like fishing for my cigarettes in the driveway. I leave. By this point, I've spent $1,200. And the guy calls me and he says, you know, I feel like it didn't totally take with you. Am I right? And I said, yeah, you're right. Come back again. I mean, I just come back and we'll, we'll make it work. So I go back. I end up going to this guy seven times, $400 a pop. And by the end, I told him it was working because I'm such a people pleaser. I didn't want this man who does this job out of his garage to think that he wasn't some sort of Merlin. So I said, you know what? You've done it. You've absolutely done it. I'm a non-smoker. And when I went into his office, I sprayed my mouth with Banaka and I had hand sanitizer and had a pack of cigarettes in the back of my pocket sitting on his broken massage chair.
And I continued to smoke for many more years. And the only thing that got me to stop smoking finally was my husband put a baby up in me. And it worked. That was magical. Not the sex part, just the that I quit smoking. It's quitting time at six o'clock. A perfect access from the bottom to the top. Major or minor. There is no distinction Cause the folk I have merged into one pointy dot At the center of the circular clock No focal length That's how I feel No focal strength Is that a pigeon? No focal length That's how I feel No focal strength Hope you have enjoyed my book report presentation on Anne Frank, The Diary of a Young Girl. I read the book seven times. To commemorate Anne's dedication to hope and to remind us that, in spite of everything, I still believe that people are really good at heart. And to never let us forget how Mep Yais baked the Franks a delicious sugar cake on one lonely New Year's Eve. I have baked you all a delicious cupcake, which you will find underneath your chairs. You can get it out now and eat it if you like. If you would like to learn more about the Franks and the cranky old dentist and the crazy old rich couple and Mushi the cat, you too can read Anne Frank, The Diary of a Young Girl. Or you can go see the community theater's production of the play, which I auditioned for but did not get cast in. Some of the cupcakes have pink frosting and some of the cupcakes have yellow frosting. It is easy to make the comparison between cupcake and holocaust. Students with yellow cupcakes, what if that were not a yellow cupcake, but a yellow star of David that said Huden, which means Jew in German, and you were forced away never to see the light of day again? Students with pink cupcakes, what if that were not a pink cupcake, but a pink triangle, which would mean that you were a gypsy or a homosexual, and you were forced away from your homes never to see your friends or your school again, all for just taking the cupcake you wanted, all for just being you? Some of the cupcakes have pudding in the mix, and some of the cupcakes do not. Thank you. That was Jen Nails as the well-meaning sixth grader, Lilas Martin. I hope I'm pronouncing the word Lilas right. Lilas is the heroine of the book Next to Mexico. Look it up at JenNails.com. And before that, a little ditty from Dave Gertzman. Well, there's a new show on these interwebs called Dave Hill's Podcasting Incident. You may know Dave from This American Life, but here he is at the Risk Live show last fall. We call this, If I Can Make It There, I'll Make It Anywhere. Hi. Actually, it wasn't. I've prepared a couple of things to talk about tonight, and I wasn't sure what which story to tell, so I wanted to leave it up to you guys if you want. The first story is about the... You either have us do this story... Uh, which is a story about the time that I tutored a special needs child and I ended up getting so much more out of it than I put into it and like learned so much from him and that's the first one and then the other option is I could tell you about the time that I went to prison what story should I tell? 
All right, I'll do it. I never tutored anybody. I, um, anyway, okay, it's true. This is a true story. And um, I, I went to prison very recently. I mean, interest of full disclosure, I, it was only like for five hours. But it was like super intense. Because, you know, it's prison. Um, you know when like when you and you're hanging out with your friends and you're just like partying and rocking and rolling and whatnot? Like, you know, this is my lifestyle, you know? And, and you're like, wouldn't it be crazy if we did this? Or like, wouldn't it be crazy if I like whip my dick out? Or whatever. Like, you talk about crazy stuff, but you don't do it. It's like you talk about, ah, oh, that'd be crazy, that'd be funny. And you, well, I was having one of these crazy fun times with my friends, and I was like, I do, as Kevin mentioned, I do this show, The Dave Hill Explosion, at UCB. And I was like, wouldn't it be funny if I did it at a prison? And my friend's like, that's really, oh yeah, that'd be so funny. And then I woke up the next day and I was like, oh man, that still seems really funny. I'm totally going to call it prison. That'll be funny too. So I thought about it and I was like, you know, I wanted it to be like a prison with like marquee value. You know what I mean? For like, if there's merchandise down the line or whatever. And then also I wanted it to be like a, a maximum security prison because that's, you know, it's like, that's how I'm living my life. It's just like all or nothing, you know? Just fucking do this, you know? So, um, do you guys know Sing Sing? It's a popular prison. Like, it's just above the city, like 30 miles outside the city. So I Google Sing Sing, and it came up right away, which you might not expect. They totally call Sing Sing. So I called Sing Sing, um, and I asked for the comedy booker. And I was like, bam. They didn't have one, so they put me on with this lady, and I, I talked to her for a bit, and we emailed back and forth for like a month, and then I booked myself into Sing Sing, and we had to book it weirdly like weeks in advance, which you wouldn't think they'd have like scheduling issues, like you'd figure they'd just be like, come on up, but it had to be like weeks ahead of time, so I told my friends that I'd book the show, and they all thought it was really funny, some didn't blame me, and I put put on my MySpace page and I thought that would be really funny and I just like oh this is so funny and then about a week before the show at once I was like oh I have to go to prison I was like that's not funny at all that's horrible that's this is terrible and like so I was gonna cancel I was like I have to make something up to the prison lady and so before I could email her she emailed me and was like hey we're really looking forward to, to having you at our prison and what all the inmates are really grateful that you're coming and like I had sent them um, like the most obnoxious photo of myself because they wanted to make a flyer so they already hung a flyer all over the prison and, and I knew it was like they'd never had a comedy show before and I was like fuck these guys know what I look like I don't want to be like the first the guy to cancel the first ever comedy show at their prison most of them are like they're like they're like super you know prisoner guys so they're never getting out but some of them get out they didn't do like that bad maybe just stab someone or whatever but I was like maybe these guys come after me so I gotta do the show show I was like you know I I think I'm, I mostly just perform to like New York audiences and stuff and like other you know fairly predictable crowds not that you guys are predictable but I mean, you know what I mean like you're not rapists so I was like um so I wrote and I was like I think I know what to expect at your prison but what you know what's it going to be like and she's like well so far 250 inmates have signed up and they're all maximum security violent felons and they really like jokes about being in prison which I guess makes sense go with what you know so and then she writes so she writes this will undoubtedly be your toughest audience. And then she put like a smiley face emoticon, I think, just to fuck with me or something. And I was like, freak, I'm like, oh my god, this is horrible. So then, I was just like, I was feeling, I was so, I was, felt horrible about it for a week. I'm like, this is so dumb. It's like a prank I'm playing on myself. It's horrible. And I was like, knew I couldn't get out of it. And originally I was going to just go by myself. I ended up like roping a few friends because people would just want, if I was going to get die, you know, I wanted some friends to see it happen so they could tell my story. Um, so I went up there and like, you know, we were all like pretty nervous. And a couple of my friends are comedians that came. So I ended up like, they came on the show. So I decided like, you know, have not just me out there um, for the whole show. So, uh, so we get there and like 
this is a, everything's leading up to this. Um, I made up like some jokes. I ended up being like three hundred people, some three hundred inmates come to this show, and like I've done like festivals and stuff with like. 300, I can handle that. But when it's like 300 murderers and rapists, it totally messes with your head in like a totally different way. And so, but I made up these jokes, like some some prison jokes and about uh, like if I was a prison bitch. And uh, I wanted to tell them for you guys right now just to give you a sense of the kind of heat that I was bringing at Sing Sing. I'll just tell it, just give you a taste. But you have to pretend you're in prison and you're all dressed alike. Um, they only have to wear the pants, which was surprising. They can mix it up with the top, I learned. Um, and when you meet them, because not, not everyone's an inmate, and you have to go like, so you have to be like, so you know who's an inmate. You shake their hand, then you sort of like try to look at their pants without them noticing. And just, you can't fool them. Um, so my joke, this one, one of the jokes, I'll just tell one, and then we'll keep going. What's the, this is my prison bitch joke. What's the difference between me and a 747? What? Um, not everyone's been inside a 747. <laughs> okay. It's a good, but within the context, it's a very good joke. But and, all right, I'll do one more. I'll do one more. No, um, but anyway, my favorite. So I was up there like doing this opening monologue. And uh, I wrote all these jokes about being in jail, and uh, but that were better than that one. Don't worry. And but my favorite thing, and I don't want to like pat myself on the back for it. I, towards the end of it, I said, "So this is my favorite joke." I said, "So who here is from out of town?" <laughs> and I was like, well, and, uh, and then and then I said, "Who came from farthest away today?" And they're all like, most of them are from the New York area, so it was especially confusing. But one guy in the front was like, uh, from, came from Kansas City. And then, so I said, did you always want to live on the East Coast? Did <laughs> it just work out that way? And that was the one joke where they were sort of like, ooh, easy, easy. They got like a little sensitive. And they were like, all right. But, um... So anyway, I was out there for like half an hour. Then my friend Carl Arnheider, a comedian, comes out, and he did great. Um, some of you might know him and then uh, another comedian my friend Laura Kraft who some of you might know she came out and she was doing great and then she kind of got a little weirded out like I think she felt like you know in the Bugs Bunny cartoons when like the, the character turns into like a turkey drumstick I think she had that happen in her brain and so she was like I, I gotta get out of here and um, so she ended her set uh, um, you know abruptly and like I had to come out like lower craft everybody, and uh, and then so I came out and was the author, and but they had assigned a uh, guard to us um, to make sure we didn't you know you know we're prison, so uh, they had this guard uh, following us around, and so she was like clearly upset, like not crying or anything, but not not psyched about the whole thing, and the guard comes over and like and he's like, are you okay? And uh, she's like, yeah, I just got scared out there. And so he says, you know, I got scared, don't you? And she's expecting some sort of insight into the human whatever. And it's like, why? Why did I get scared? And he's like, well, those guys are all murderers and rapists. <laughs> so anyway, I go back out there. Um, so I go back out there and I finish the show. And I had the best time in prison. And uh, I ended up getting like a standing ovation. And then they marched all the inmates out, and uh, and then they put them in their prison cell block thingy. And they marched me past there, and they were all like, Hey, Dave, thanks, Dave, and all waving at me. And it was so cool. And like I got outside, and they were all out the bars and stuff, waving. It was like Shawshank Redemption. Have you ever seen that? It was like, that was the coolest thing. So they're like, thanks, Dave. And so I was like, all right, I'll see you guys later. I guess I'll uh, go to do whatever the fuck I want now. Um, <laughs> And then, here's where the story gets crazy. Um, so anyway, I got, and this is what I did not expect, because I was really, you know, I'd set up the show because I thought it was just an absurd thing to do and everything, and I was really terrified. And, and, I, and like a lot of people in the arts, I have like a host of mental conditions and I take a lot of drugs, like, you know, prescription. Um, 
but the experience of being in prison for just a few hours ended up being like I like they say prison changes you like, like you would think it would take longer than that but um but seriously I just felt different all of a sudden it was like I went on that like outward bound but like compressed into just one wild afternoon and um and like I, you know, I, I uh, see a, like a lot of people, I guess, in, in town. I, I see a therapist, and I asked him, I was like, "Is it possible? Like four or five hours in prison would would to change me?" And he's like, "Yeah, I like it's, those guys are murderers and rapists, you know." And um, but I felt like I just felt I can't explain. It's not like I think I'm a badass or anything, or I've done some good deed. I don't think either of those things. Um, but I feel so much better, and like I totally recommend if you can ever go to prison, in, in like in a come and go sort of situation like that, you should do it. I don't have like an ending really. I thought of a, like an ending. I guess I just wanted to say, and there should be like some musical cue for this if you want. But um, I learned that um, by going to prison, I learned how to be free in here. Thank you. A few years ago, I was working on a production, and I got really excited because Tom Arnold was going to be on set. Now, I was a really big Tom Arnold fan before he showed up for work. I soon realized that the man is a complete monster, okay? And you can imagine how a kid feels. I'm, I'm young. I'm coming up into stand-up. I really want to find a mentor, someone who's going to really guide me, give me some great advice. And then this guy comes up, and he's got a prescription for like a kilo of Vicodin from his doctor. So he's, quote, sober. But really, is that that's not really sober, is it? He's calling the director a queer in front of his family. He's asking the executive producer for Diet Cokes. He thinks the co-star that's next to him is his limo driver, and then to top it all off, he's late every single day, making all hundred and some people on the set wait for him, and then has the nerve to walk off set because he says he's not getting paid enough money. Maybe it was a good educational experience for me and what Hollywood really is. But the last day of his shoot came, and the executive producer had actually picked him up from his house to make sure that he was on set on time. And he still was late because he made the producer wait 45 minutes outside of his house. So, the end of the day comes, the executive producer comes up to me and he's like, Cena, could you do me a favor and drive Tom Arnold home? I was like, sure. Here's my chance. Maybe, maybe... He'll give me some good advice. So we're in the car. We're driving back to his place. And I'm like, Tom, you know, I'm a young stand-up. I'm trying to make it. Like, how did you come up and stand-up? I really, you know, enjoyed a lot of your material and stuff. Uh, yeah, it's, it's tough. You just got to work. Yeah, work, yeah. And I was like, oh, God, what? And he's just in his Blackberry, and he's just, ah, oh, ignoring me. And I'm just fuming at this point. I really wanted to do something crazy, like scream at someone in traffic, just to, like, shake the car right up a little bit. But so at one point, I was like, you know, Tom, I'm probably going to get some In-N-Out Burger on the way back. It's a lot of traffic. And then his, I saw, it like, like, a, like, a rabbit. His ears, like, perked up, right? So I drop him off at his house, and before he leaves, he goes, Hey, uh, hey, uh, you think you're still going to In-N-Out Burger? And I was like, oh, in my head, I'm thinking, okay, punch him in the balls, get in the car, drive away. Balls, car, drive. Balls, car, drive. Go. But instead, I was like, sure, Tom, what can I get you? Would you like something, buddy? And, of course, he's like, uh, give me a double-double and a chocolate milkshake. And he gives me a 20, and I get in the car, and I'm driving to In-N-Out Burger. And I'm thinking, this guy's got to go down. Humanity needs to stand up against Tom Arnold, and I'm thinking, I am going to spit in his food. No, no, Cena, no. You were raised better than that. Your parents are immigrants from Iran. They went through a revolution. They came to America. They raised you and your brother. Your brother's a surgeon. They raised you better than that. I'll just dip my balls in Tom Arnold's chocolate shake. 
and there I am in the drive-thru line with my balls out covered by a sweater and I take his food, I take his milkshake, I put his 20 back in the bag so when he opens it up he's like, oh what a nice kid, he bought me my lunch. And so I get to the first traffic light, I open up the milkshake, I dip my balls in this milkshake and pain courses through my body like I had been shot with a freeze gun. It was just the biggest mistake I have ever made. I thought to myself, you did not think this through at all. It's ice on your balls. This is not what you're supposed to do. I don't care how funny it is. Do not do this. I'm wiping it up off my pants and I'm trying. I'm trying and I'm like, oh god, this is going to be worth it. This is is going to be worth it. I put it back. I get to his place. I call him. He comes back down and I say, Tom, here you go. Here's your food. And he goes, thanks. And listen, if you ever need any help with your stand-up, let me know. And right then, he just starts sucking down that milkshake. (laughs) And it was all worth it. I got back in the car. I went back to set, and I texted one of my friends on set. And by the time I got back, it was like Caesar came back from Egypt on a conquest, you know? I came in, and everyone was, like, clapping for me. People were coming up to me. Like, the the director's wife came up to me. It gave me a hug. She had her child in her arms. She said, thank you. Thank you for doing this. And the best thing that anyone did on set, one of the key grips came up to me, or the key grip, rather, came up to me and said, you know, I bet you're not the first person who's done that. And I was like, what? Are you kidding? No, come on. No one else could have possibly done this. It's too painful. How could that has to be? There is no original idea. I think all the statute of limitations has run up on any sort of claim he may have against me, even if he remembers anything, which I doubt he does. (laughs) So that's how I stuck my balls in Tom Marlowe's chocolate shake. It was well worth it. the hilarious Cena John and this matchup is called No More Pressure by Messy James next up Don Fraser Don took one of our storytelling classes here in New York and now she's killing at story shows all around town we call this one The Nutcracker years ago, my best friend Doreen was traveling through China, Japan, and Taiwan with her boyfriend Mark for three weeks. And while they were gone, they asked me to babysit their beloved 
hamster. The hamster's name was Walnut. It was really cute. So when Doreen came over to my house with his care package, I was like, what is all this stuff? She said, well, this is premium quality hamster food. This is Bark Bites, which he uses for gnawing. And this is blue organic bedding for hamsters with sensitive fur. And I said, hamsters with sensitive fur. This is one pimped out hamster. So I decide that I'm going to have a good time with this bougie hamster. And the first thing I decided to do was to take some pictures. The first picture I decided to take with Walnut was him sniffing down a bottle of Smirnoff. So it really looked like he was getting his liquor on. The second picture I decided to take was him basically riding a Rastafarian figurine. And I thought it would be hilarious if I had Walnut straddling this Rastafarian figurine. And if I sent these pictures off to Mark and Doreen in Taiwan, which is exactly what I did. And so on the second day, I remember that they asked me to take it out every now and then to let it run around, have a good time. And he kept trying to eat my oatmeal. I said, no, okay, you know what? You cannot be trusted, Walnut. So instead I took him and I put him in my lap. And while he was in my lap, I was on Facebook. I think I was stalking my ex for a while and I had really captivated. So I kind of lost track of time. And the next thing you know, I'm feeling around my lap for a Walnut and I don't feel him anywhere. And so I, I turn around in my chair I'm like, walnut? And I hear this, and I'm like, oh my God, what's going on? And I look down, and walnut is on the ground shaking. He was convulsing, like he was just looked like he was going crazy. I was like, oh my God, this is so scary. So I get on my hands and my knees, and I'm thinking to myself, okay, um, there's got to be something I can do. Can I give it CPR with my pinkies? No, I can't give it CPR. Can I call 911 for a convulsing rodent? And as I'm thinking about all these different options, his eyes close. And the next thing you know, he's passed away. I just started bawling and bawling and bawling. I felt so bad. I didn't know what to do. I didn't know what happened. So I decided to call my mom. Now, my mom is from Trinidad. So I said, Mom... I don't know what happened, but I was watching Doreen and Mark's hamster and it committed suicide. And she said, you mean you're crying over a dead hamster? I said, mom, first of all, respect. Its name is Walnut. Okay. And, and second of all, Doreen and Mark were paranoid about me watching it because I told Mark I would teach it how to swim. She said, well, you're just going to have to go bury it. And I thought about it. And I live on the second floor of a brownstone. And I said, Mom, I don't have access to a plot of land anywhere. There's nowhere where I can just go to bury this hamster. She said, well, then just go find a sewer. Go find somewhere, a dumpster, and just go dump it in the dumpster. And of course, this whole process of me coddling a dead rodent is not going to make sense to my mother. I mean, sure, if it were her pet goat or her pet rooster in Trinidad, it would make sense. But us Americans and our pet rodents? No, forget about it. Forget about it. And she says, Dawn, I have an idea. Why don't you just get them another hamster? I said, I can't just get them another hamster. They're going to know. She said, they don't know. It's just a rat without a tail. And this is the manifestation of their love. They really wanted kids, but instead they got this hamster. She said, why don't you just stick it in your freezer? I said, in the freezer? She said, yeah, stick it in the freezer. That way when they come home, they can bury the hamster themselves. I said, okay, but I don't really want this corpse next to my ice cream and my ice cubes. That's just nasty. She said, well, then stick it in their freezer. For them to come home and to see that their beloved walnut is frozen and has been there for three weeks waiting for them to arrive. No, I can't, I can't do it. I just can't do it. She said, well, I don't know what to tell you then. And I was like, all right, mom, fine, whatever. My mom is telling me to throw it in the dumpster. My other friend is telling me to get an autopsy. The vet won't do anything for me. I'm burning sage in my apartment, hoping that his little walnut soul is going up to heaven because I'm pretty sure my black ass is going to hell. So what I did, I wrapped him up very delicately in a hand towel. And I put the little hand towel and walnut in a Verizon wireless cell phone box 
which was his makeshift coffin. And I took the coffin to my car and I was driving around looking anywhere. I was looking at sewers like my mom recommended. I was looking at community gardens that I finally just drove out to Prospect Park in Brooklyn. And this was in November. So I had on me a beanie, a jacket, and this big plastic shovel that was in the back of my trunk. So I go out to the park and I find a spot. I start shoveling and shoveling and shoveling. And as I'm shoveling, I realize here I am, a black woman with a beanie on, violently digging up dirt. I look mad suspect. And just as I'm thinking this, I see two rangers off in the distance passing my way. And I think, oh, hell no. I am not going down over the burial of a hamster. So instead, I see this massive pile of leaves. And I grab as many leaves as I possibly could in five seconds. I piled them on top of the Verizon wireless box, shoved it in as far as I possibly could. Boom, I hit it out of there. I was gone. I didn't even bother to look back. But I had done walnut no justice. So I, I head back home thinking, how am I possibly going to explain this to Dorian and Mark? Should I send them an email? Should I call them in Taiwan on their vacation? I go back to the scene of the incident. And I'm looking. I'm contemplating. And I'm sitting in my chair. And I live in a brownstone. And many of the brownstones in Brooklyn have a bit of a lean to them because they're really old buildings. And so my chair always rolls back every time I sit at my desk. Every time I sit at my desk, it rolls back. And so I was sitting there thinking. And I rolled back once. I rolled back twice. The third time... I grabbed the desk, I pulled myself forward, and it hit me. I called up my mom again, and she said, Dawn, what is it? You still haven't found somewhere to bury the hamster? That's not why I'm calling. I'm, I'm calling because I have another problem. I just realized how it died. I said, I cracked walnut. But wait! I said, yeah, I rolled over it with my chair. Lord have mercy. I said, Mom, that's not the worst part. The last pictures that I sent to Doreen and Mark were a picture of me pretending like I was going to eat their beloved walnut like it was a chicken McNugget. And she said, Dawn Fraser, good Lord have mercy. What are you going to tell them? She said, well, you can always just tell them that next time You'll be a little bit safer with their children. A few weeks later, of course, Mark and Doreen were looking for their beloved Walnut. And I had to let them know that it wasn't going to happen. Unfortunately, Walnut passed. And he took it rather rough at first. But he did see that it was an accident and he understood. But to this day, I have not lived down the title of the Hamster Slayer. I 
wonderful Julie Peel there. And this is Anthony Rajakoff behind me now. Our last storyteller is one of the most talked about comedians out there today. She's all over the place, and we love her. Check out her podcast. It's called The Dork Forest. This is Jackie Cation with a story we call All the Rage. story is about uh, how people are afraid of me. Okay, I, like everybody, I've had to work on anger issues, and um, I'm the youngest of six, and there was a lot of hitting when I was a tiny child, and then we grew up, and there was less hitting, but nobody ever came up with another way, an alternative way to deal with rage. So I didn't have any plan for it. So around when I was about eight or nine years old, I essentially internalized everything and just started um, reading and rereading the same books over and over again, like a toddler watching The Little Mermaid. And it was beautiful. But uh, so I've never had to deal with it. And I do stand-up comedy. I'm a, a comic. I've been doing stand-up comedy forever since women comics would get stage time right before they were burned as a witch. <laughs> yes. Hester Prynne opened for me. Okay, so, but get this, is every, all comics have a heckler story, and here is mine. I'm doing stand-up for about a year in Madison, Wisconsin, and I'm doing a 10-minute spot, and I'm eating it. I'm not doing well, I'm doing poorly, and there are hecklers, and I deal with them as best I can, and I get off stage, and I have to walk by one of the tables that has two of the hecklers in it, and they continue to heckle me while I'm in the audience. Uh, as I walk past their table, they're still yelling at me. One of them has passed out, and the other one is still yelling at me. And I get past him, and I get up to the bar, and I order a mug of beer, and I'm standing there drinking it and seething and very angry, and the heckler comes and stands right behind me, and I make a very mature decision that if he talks to me one more time, I'm going to throw my beer at him. He doesn't talk to me. He touches me. And later... I found out uh, that the bouncer and the uh, bartender both claimed that he was reaching over my shoulder to grab my breast. My breast. Uh, but I didn't see that. Uh, I just felt him touch my shoulder. I turned around, threw the beer at him, missing him completely, <laughs> hitting the man behind him full in the face. The heckler then picks up that man's drink and throws it at me. So I'm wet. The man behind the heckler is wet. The heckler is standing there laughing. And so I punched him. <laughs> Normally, I could not have knocked down a six-foot-tall man, but I forgot that I was still holding the beer mug. So I clocked him with a beer mug, and he fell down, and he got up, and he was screaming at me, You fucking dyke! I'm gonna kill you! Uh, a common enough comment from some men who see women do stand-up comedy uh, that we're all dykes. And I said, uh, you got a problem with homosexuality, faggot? <laughs> Not my proudest moment. Uh, we were both ejected from the, uh, the bar, and because it wasn't a movie, we didn't end up dating. So... since I've had any sort of heckler problems and I, I deal with them differently. I'm a grown-up now. I've had some therapy, some pillow therapy. I've had some plastic surgery of the soul, as it were. But last year, I was working with this woman and she, in the course of us working during a week, she said the second day, she said, I was a little scared when I met you because you looked like you could kick my ass. And that made me had to check like my, my threat level to humanity. Uh, because I'm pretty sure. And the weird thing is, is if I'm so scary, why do people feel completely compelled to tell me whatever they think of me? I had a guy in Iowa come up to me after a show and he said, you can hit me if you want. Again, no hitting in grown-up land. And he goes, but you remind me of a female Dennis Franz. <laughs> That is the man who played Sipowitz on NYPD Blue. Uh, and I said, well, there will still be no hitting, but you don't have to say everything. And several years ago, a film buff, an older film buff, told me that I reminded him of a female Sheldon Leonard, who is the guy who played Nick the bartender on It's a Wonderful Life. He was handing out wings. 
My favorite was in Pittsburgh where the club owner in the first week that we met, in the first conversation we ever had, in the middle of the conversation, he said, you were a carny, weren't you, Jackie? <laughs> no, no, I was never a carny. Anyway. So I go to college where I begin to meet my real friends, my real, what I consider my family, I guess, because they wanted me to be a better person. They taught me how to be a better person. They explained that the moral of the story in sitcoms and stuff, those are not suggestions. I mean, those are not, that's not fiction. That's an actual, people live like those morals all the time. The happy days morals, yeah. Don't be a jackass. Racism is bad, according to Fonzie. All of these things, right? Okay, so I internalize that. Stand-up comedy, by the way, does not make you want to be a better person. Uh, Stand-up comedy makes you want to turn your rage into something funny. So here's what's left of my rage. What's left of my rage now, many years later, is that I am a jackass in public to strangers. Every eight to eight months, I'm, I'm a bad person. So I am rude in public to people in a retail situation or other horrible, but I've made this decision in the last couple of years that if I am rude, if I have done, if I am in the wrong, I have to apologize. And if I don't get a grip on my temper fast enough, I have to go back and find them and apologize. I have to get back in, I can't tell you how many times I've had to get back in my car in the last five years and go find some bag boy. And, but the thing is, <laughs> it makes me stop. It makes me take another moment, think it through. Is this jackass comment that I'm gonna make worth the journey of me coming back and having to apologize, <laughs> right? So, okay. One of the times that happened, this is not, this does not reflect well upon me. Okay, so I'm in Los Angeles, I pull up to a gas station, a woman cuts me off and goes up to the pump. And so I pull up, I cut her off, I park her in and she's calmly filling her tank. And I get out and I start yelling at her and she's ignoring me. And I'm yelling at her and she's ignoring me. And I grab her shirt. <laughs> and she looks me at that time in the eye uh, I have her attention at this time. And then she says, uh, you're not going to hit me. And that's when I realized she was wearing a bus driver's uniform. So she had obviously dealt with the insane before. <laughs> and I released her shirt, straightened it out a little bit. And I said, of course, I'm not going to hit you. And then a pump right next to her opened up. And I spent the next four minutes apologizing and us silently pumping our gas next to each other. So that, that's the sort of thing. I mean, I don't know what, what you think. I don't know how rude you get with people, but it's, it's not. And the other reason I want to not do it anymore is because I hate a witness. Two years ago, it happens every 18 months. Uh, so two years ago, my husband is with me and I had an incident where there was no elevator and I had to carry my luggage up two flights of stairs. It might have been three, uh, it might have been one. Uh, but he was right there and a man offered to hold the door. He held the door, but he wasn't actually helping. So I said to him, why don't you get the fuck out of the way? I'm playing through. And my husband, it was the first time my husband ever saw me lose it. And he just looked at me and he said, why don't you apologize? And I was so bad because I was acting like a child and he was treating me like a child and I was acting like a child and it just, a circle, my head exploded. But I still had to find the man and apologize to him. Now, the last time this has happened was six months ago. And uh, I'm hoping it never happens again. But I was at a liquor store buying uh, a Diet Coke. And <laughs> sure, very glamorous uh, retail moment. And the man in front of me was writing a check for his whatever. And he got to the end of his transaction and he didn't have his ID. And so he said, I have to run out to my car to get my ID. But he had already been rung up and the check was sitting there. And so he walks out the door and I turn to the cashier and I say, can I just give you money for this. Can I just pay for this? And the cashier, who has his own issues, I get that, he's working. And I, he goes, uh, yes, when that guy is back, you can't skip. And I lost my shit 
and I crumpled a $5 bill up and I threw it at his face. And I said, screw this, and I walked out. And I went and I met my friend for coffee and I sat down and I told her what happened and she sat there silently and she said, so you gonna go back? And I said, I think I paid for my amends in cash. And she goes, ah, okay. So then I had to go back. And he was on break at Quiznos. And so I had to stand outside the liquor store until he came back from his break from Quiznos. And he comes walking up and he recognizes me and he stops. And he goes, so do you want your money back? And I said, no, no. I just want to apologize for being a jackass. I was late for my meeting, but there's no reason to be, have a temper tantrum. So I just wanted to apologize. And he goes, okay. Well, I bought $5 worth of lottery tickets. You want to give me your number? If we win, I'll call you. And I said, okay. He didn't call me. We didn't win. Uh, but I did the right thing. And so I feel better about that. And I hope to never have to apologize again. Thank you very much. Go Home Productions with a mashup called Bus Stop Runner there. Well, that concludes Season 1 of the Risk Podcast. We are so grateful to all of you for being here to listen and to share. And while we're saying thank you for sticking us in your ear canals, we'll go out with our very dear friend Shayna Firm saying thank you to some dude for sticking something else altogether in her. Yeah.
Inside.